Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Jonathan Robinson, the author of The Enlightenment Project. Jonathan is the author of 14 books. He's a psychotherapist, spiritual coach, and a professional speaker. His first book, The Experience of God, includes interviews with the late Mother Teresa, the Dalai Lama, and several other spiritual masters. You can learn more about Jonathan's work in the world at theenlightenmentproject.net. In the conversation, Jonathan and I discuss why we search for wisdom, myths about enlightenment, how not to take life so serious, the benefits of quieting the mind, the wisdom of gratitude, and so much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and book. Jonathan has a lot of wisdom to share, but has a way of communicating it in a very practical way. So without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Jonathan Robinson. Jonathan Robinson, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about your book, The Enlightenment Project, which I've really enjoyed. But before we get into the book, I'm I'm curious to ask, what got this search or interest in enlightenment all started? Well, I think like with a lot of people... is due to being in intense pain at some point in your life. And I was very fortunate that I grew up in a dysfunctional family that led to a midlife crisis at age 12. (laughs) So Mm. since I couldn't control my environment, I figured maybe I could control my mind. Mm. And that led to things like self-help books. By the time I was 13, I was into meditation and yoga and hypnosis and it kind of spiraled from there. Hmm. I was looking at your your background, and I, I've listened to a, a number of uh, previous interviews you you've done. And your first book was called "The Experience of God." Was there a moment or anything that that comes to mind that led you to to write that first book? Well, I was asking a friend of mine how she experienced God, you know, because she told me uh, God told her to do something that day. I said, well, how'd you know it was God? And she said, oh, it makes my hair on the back of my neck stand up. And I said, well, that's not my experience of God. And (laughs) so I figured it'd be interesting to ask the experts. So I asked everybody from the late Mother Teresa to Ram Dass to Dalai Lama how they experienced God. And their answers were really very interesting and very helpful to me. So I'm I'm very persistent, and I figured it would be really good to know how the experts do what they do so that maybe people like you and I can uh, use their breadcrumbs to trace our way back to higher states of consciousness as well. Well, I love the persistence and the, and the search as well. I'm curious— you know, speaking to all these different people and, and yourself, this lifelong search, how do you make sense of some of these, 
I, I, I tend to use the word search, but there's many other words you could maybe use that just don't quite end. It's, you seem to get, you know, bit with some sort of curiosity or quest for something. And it, it seems to just last till the, you know, end of, of most people's days. Well, there's two things. One is there's always more to discover. There's always higher states of consciousness, different states to experience. So in that way, a search is good. But a lot of people end up doing the same thing a thousand times and it's not really working for them. Mm. So they're not getting what they really want. And one of the reasons I wrote the Enlightenment Project was to give people a lot of options as to what seems to work. Now that we know from science, we've studied enlightened people, what seems to work, what doesn't seem to work, and how you might get better results more quickly. I definitely appreciate the, the practical nature of, of the book, along with the exploration of um, not just one wisdom tradition, but many different paths, if you will. I wanted to talk a little bit about defining what is enlightenment, but instead of maybe asking that, I thought we could go through a few of the myths about enlightenment sure. that you have in the book, and, and that may uh, uh, be serve the listeners. Uh. So, the first I, I have down is myth number one, enlightenment is a rare or special condition. There are very few enlightened people. And you talk about enlightenment is, is not an all or nothing event. Could you say more? Well, I think most people have had at least a minute of enlightenment in their life where they, you know, were fully present with a sunset and they realized that they were alive, they were full of joy. Um, and some people spend all their time in that state. So that's quite a spectrum. But the question is really, how can you and I spend more time in this state of presence where we feel connected to everything? Uh, Ajashanti calls enlightenment perceiving the world without the lens of the ego. So it feels very free and vast and very peaceful. And uh, it's not an all or nothing thing. You can learn to become more and have more and more of those moments until your identity kind of shifts out of being an ego into being your soul or pure love. And I think we're all on that journey. Some of us have had more luck than others. But with the right method and the right idea, it doesn't need to take very long. Hmm. And there's another myth that you have is there's one true path to enlightenment. Why is that a myth? Well, there's scientists who studied a lot of enlightened people now, and they find that there's a lot of different approaches. There's some people that uh, tune into Holy Spirit, some people who tune into Buddhist methods, some Hindu methods. So uh, I think the, the best method is the one that works the quickest for you and resonates with you. But just because you were born into a certain ideology or religion doesn't mean that that's the one that's going to work best for you. And then the last myth that I that I have here is you have to get rid of something or become psychologically healed before enlightenment can occur. Well, my uh, f late friend Ramdas 
used to say that every neurosis he ever had, he still had. He just changed his relationship with them from thinking that that was him to the neuroses being more like beloved little pets inside of him. You know, so you can not identify with all your psychological stuff and still be enlightened, still have these higher states of consciousness of love and peace without these uh, little neurotic parts of us uh, taking the show. I I can picture that. I saw the documentary where at least that's where I uh, heard him say that. And there's a, there's a chuckle, there's a humor. Um, I think he was talking about running into a friend that he hadn't seen in, you know, a few decades and his friend saying, you haven't changed a bit and you know, right, right. <laughs> laugh, laughing about that. What, uh, what role does, does humor and maybe a, maybe a bit of, uh, you know, not taking things so seriously connect with enlightenment? Well, you know, I've now interviewed about 100 spiritual teachers, uh, probably anybody your listeners have heard of. And people will often ask me, like, what have you noticed is in common? And two things stand out. One is um, almost all of them are very kind and very giving in some way. The other thing that stood out is that almost all of them have a great sense of humor. You know, I think we take ourselves too seriously. And if you look at the word humor, it's, it says you more, you more. And that when you let yourself out and you're not so inhibited and you're willing to joke about yourself and the world, it just makes everything lighter. And enlightenment is partly about being lighter, not uh, being so heavy in bringing our past to the present or bring or worrying about the future. And to transition, I, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about one of the myths that you that you list about post enlightenment. Enlightenment is the end of all desire. Can you say a bit more about desire and enlightenment or or awakening? Well, you know, if you're in a human body, and uh, most of the enlightened people I've I've interviewed are. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a couple of exceptions, but um, if you're in a human body, you're going to have desire, you know, to avoid pain and gain pleasure. Once again, the difference is your relationship to it. Uh, most people feel totally compelled and uh, needing to satisfy all their desires, where the more enlightened you are, first of all, the less desires you have, but the ones that you have don't compel you and uh, haunt you in the same way. They're more like, yeah, I, I'd like pepperoni pizza, but if pepperoni pizza isn't available, then whatever you got. <laughs> I find that to be really helpful. It seems like that can be a myth that can really maybe grab us or connect to us, uh, you know, around desire in a in attachment. It's not necessarily getting rid of, of preferences, but being at peace, no matter what life throws our way. How can we step into, into that a bit more? Mm -hmm. Well, one good analogy is, uh, if you think of the material world and our desires as being channel two on a, on a TV set, 
you know, it's you're you're different than me. Uh, this pizza is better than that pizza, you know, and we want things to be the way we want. That's that's understandable. And most people don't have another channel that they're tuning into. Uh, but there is another channel called Channel One in which there's peace and love inside yourself and everything is connected. Well, if Channel Two is not giving you what you want, at least there's always Channel One to fulfill you. So people mm-hmm. who are enlightened, you know, it's it's like Monopoly money. If you lose Monopoly money, well, that's not as much fun as winning Monopoly, but it's all Monopoly money to you. So you're not so bummed out because you realize you already have a billion dollars inside you, and that's not going anywhere. How does that come into play for you and, and some of the people that, that you've been fortunate enough to interview in the way of discerning maybe which path to, to walk in life? And, mm-hmm. and I'm referring to maybe some of the practical things of, of what to do, different projects, knowing that that channel one is is available on, on either path or any path you take. Well, uh, another analogy I use is that think of uh, that the universe is playing the hot and cold game with us. Have you ever played the hot and cold game where, you know, you hide a pen and somebody tells oh. you whether you're getting warmer or cooler? Yeah. Well, when you do something in the material world, the universe tells you if you're getting warmer or cooler. You know, if it feels good, that's warmer. If you get great results, that's warmer. If it feels boring and meaningless, that's cooler. If you get terrible results, that's cooler. So if you take action and then listen to the results that you're getting, you're soon guided to a certain place. So I, I, I didn't plan to be a writer, um, but every time I wrote something, it did well. I got on Oprah and the Today Show and the Tonight Show and all. That's the universe saying, you're red hot, baby, go in that direction. You know, so, and then I've had jobs that were totally meaningless and I hated. That's the universe saying, you're freezing, try something else. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed how you finished up the book, this this parable about Sam, the cameraman. How did this, this parable come to you, Jonathan? Through a process known as PFM. Uh, PFM is how I get my ideas, and it's how the, my iPhone works. It's how a lot of things in the world work, and PFM stands for Pure Friggin' Magic. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You know, that's how everything works. At the, I, I just woke up with the idea and I started writing it. I wrote it in 10 minutes. And then I said, hey, that's pretty good. I like that. So um, I think the more you quiet your mind and you try to align with the universe uh, and and become more enlightened and more awake, the more these synchronicities happen, the more creative juices can move through you um, the more you're in the right place at the right time. And that's how I think it works, but I don't know really, you know, it all strikes me as kind of magical in some way. I, I found the the story of, of you picking up the phone and, and calling mother Teresa and her answering the phone as a real magical moment of how in the world yeah. You know, did that happen? Could you share the story? Well, um, 
I wanted to interview Mother Teresa, but I didn't. This is back in 1993, I think, and there was no internet. So even finding a phone number for anything related to Mother Teresa was hard to do. But I decided, you know, I'd go to the library and give it a shot. It's kind of like, you know, buying a ticket for the lottery. If God wants me to win the lottery, at least I should buy a ticket. So um, I get a phone number for her organization in India. And, you know, I, I call it. Now, back in 1993, calling India was a little bit like calling the space station with about as much chance of succeeding. But, you know, what the hell? I, I put it on a list. I told people I was going to give it a try. So I gave it a try. And a woman answers. And I say, you know, my name's Jonathan. I'd like to interview Mother Teresa for this book I'm doing. And the woman says, yes, this is Ma. And I say, Ma, you know, can do you know Mother Teresa? And she says, yes, this is Ma. And I realized it sounded like Mother Teresa. I said, are you telling me this is Mother Teresa? And she said, yes, how can I help you? And after a little bit of crying, because I couldn't believe this miracle, I said something like, why'd you answer the phone? And she said something like, well, I never answered the phone, but it was ringing as I walked by, you know? So I saw that as just another example of grace. And, you know, when you try to serve and you try to do what your inner guidance tells you to do, I think you get more and more of these magical moments. At least that's what I've found in my life. It's unbelievable. It, it, it is definitely magical. That's something I'm I'm going to re remember, I think, for quite some time. Well, one of the things she said in our conversation, I asked her, um, how do you meditate? And she said, well, I don't really meditate. And I don't know much about meditation, but the Dalai Lama does. Would you like his phone number? So that's how I got in touch with the Dalai Lama. You know, the whole thing was almost like, yeah. what planet am I on right now? <laughs> it's awesome. But it, it reminds me of, of, as you describe that, of, of getting this idea or this, uh, you know, of, of doing this, but then taking the steps, going, finding the number, making the call, um, of, of something I read a, a few years ago that stuck with me. Um, from St. Augustine, where he says, you know, God supplies the wind, but you still have to raise the sails. You know, yeah. there's this idea of there's, there's also action required on, on your part. Well, I think you bring up an important point that we're, we have a task to do, and the universe has a task to do. And if, if you get both those wings going at the same time, you soar. But a lot of times people just want it all to be done. You know, surrender doesn't mean I do nothing. It means that I act and then I'm not attached to the fruits of the action. And I, I listen for what the universe is directing me to do. And getting those two things together is hard because one involves vigorous action and the, all, the other involves vigorous surrender. And... um Usually people are good at one and not the other. So interesting. And I want to talk a little bit about this parable. I made a note from uh, from how you, how you close up the book. And it, it says, Sam asked the guru, 
what's the difference between my view of the world and yours? And you write, the thought that you exist as an individual controlling anything is a camera trick. It is simply an illusion. Could you say a little more? Yeah, I could say a lot about that. Well, you know, we tend to think of ourselves as being a character. You know, you're Joshua, I'm Jonathan. We have a past. We even have an imagined future. But we don't, in reality, experience the world that way. We experience ourselves moment to moment. So it might be that our entire past, this idea of who we are, is just um, an illusion. It may have happened, it may not have, but it's all in the past. Right now, what we experience is uh, I see a body in front of me. I, I see a, a computer screen in front of me. I see you on the computer screen. This idea of Jonathan doing all this is just, you could call it a camera trick. In Buddhism, they just say that, you know, there is no real self. There's just you in a moment. There's just an awareness in the moment. And as you turn away from this imagined character, this story in your head about the character Joshua or Jonathan, and you experience yourself just in this moment as an awareness, that frees you into a higher state of consciousness. But we bring this burden of all the, you know, Jonathan has these problems and Joshua has this tendency and, and we bring that to every moment which is really not necessary. And enlightened people just don't bring their past into the present. They don't worry about the future. They're just really present. And that's where peace uh, is found. In your experience of, of interviewing some of these enlightened people and in, in, in your work over the many, many decades on the path, how should we think about, you know, someone that's new, that's listening um, that's walking the path to, to whatever it may be, wisdom and enlightenment, how should one think about the past? Well, I think that you first have to decide, is this something that interests you? Uh, how important is peace? How important is your personal evolution to you? And once you say, oh, well, that's somewhat important, you know, then it's really a matter of, how can I find a good match between what I'm interested in and what will help me? Like, what's my real goal here? You know, for me, I first wanted to get out of depression. And then my big goal, once I did that, I wanted to experience more love and peace and joy. And now my goal is a little bit towards how I can contribute. So, you know, what's your target? What's your goal? And then what tools or people or books can I find that will help accelerate that? So if you're interested in inner peace, then try a bunch of different methods from my book or other people's stuff and then see what really seems to work for you. Because don't take other people's word for it. Know from your personal experience, wow, that really, you know, made a difference. You know, at one time I tried psychedelics and I said, wow, these states of consciousness are amazing. How can I get there without the drugs? And I did find some methods that 
you know, even though I'm kind of lazy, worked in leading to more joy and peace in like five minutes. Well, once I found those, it wasn't a discipline to do them again. It was like, when can I do it next? How do you make sense? Or I guess my my question is something around the different paths. So you've spoken to people, like you said, in the, in the story of maybe Mother Teresa, who didn't necessarily, you know, practice meditation, but more of a, of a stillness in, in prayer. And then the Dalai Lama, you know, uh, a, a more maybe formal meditator. How do you make mm-hmm. sense of some of these different paths and practices leading to the, to the same spot of this in, enlightenment? Well, great question. I'll, I'll use another analogy. If you imagine like a bicycle wheel with all these spokes, on the outside of the wheel are all these different approaches. You know, you can call them Buddhism and Christianity and Islam and uh, New Age and all these different things on the surface. But as you travel those spokes to the center hub, they all lead to very similar things. So a very evolved Christian and a very evolved Jew and a very evolved Buddhist all experience a lot of peace and love and joy. They took different methods to get there, but in the end, they all kind of are in the similar uh, arena. And your mission, should you decide to accept it, is to find (laughs) what spoke will help travel you to those experiences efficiently and effectively for anyone listening you know interested in in finding a spoke or finding a path would you advise someone to maybe pick a particular wisdom tradition christianity buddhism etc these many wisdom traditions or you know is it okay to mix and match pick things, come up with something that works for you. Any thoughts there? I think it's really different for different people. You know, um, that some people will do best if they really dive deeply into one tradition, and some people do better as a mix and match. I talk about that in in the book. Um, So, you know, it's hard to make rules along this way, But if you try an experiment, like I've tried, you know, being a Hindu for a month, then being a a Buddhist for a month, and then being a, uh, you know, Muslim for a month. And from doing that, I started to see what seemed to work for me and what didn't. I eventually came up with, you know, a lot of methods that work for me. But since I get to speak to a lot of people, I found what methods work for thousands of people, like, you know, What are the five top methods? And um, I believe that people shouldn't have to pay a lot of money for this stuff. So I actually offer those five, my five favorite quickest methods for free on my website, uh, theenlightenmentproject.net. And people can just get them for free at a free ebook and try them out. And you might find that one of those methods works great for you. And if you don't, there's 30 other methods in my book. And usually if people try five or six things, one thing just stands out like, oh, my God, that just blew my head apart. Uh, How do I do that again? 
And then you have a friend for life. I love it. And we'll, uh, we'll link that in the show notes. So it'll be easy to find for the listeners. One of the themes that you, you talk about in the book that, that comes up from, from many of these conversations that you've had is, is gratitude. How do you, you think about gratitude and, and how do some of these people that you, you've spoke to over the decades talk about gratitude? Well, one of the things that surprised me was how many of them talked about gratitude. I thought, you know, uh, a lot of these teachers would talk about love or awareness, but a lot of them talked about gratitude. So I started to see that as a doorway. And because I'm lazy, I never was able to tune into a gratitude journal or writing things down that way. So uh, a funny story I share in the book is that a friend of mine came back from India filled with gratitude, and he looked like he was lit up. So I asked him, what, 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 what happened in India? And he said his guru had taught him this magical mantra for feeling overwhelming gratitude. Well, I always want the best techniques, Joshua. So I said, what's the mantra? And he said, you got to go to India and get it directly from the guru. Have you been to India, Joshua? I have not. Well, it's a hard place to get to. Uh, it's 18,000 <laughs> miles away. And I'm kind of pissed off because I didn't want to go. You know, I just wanted the, the stupid mantra. Anyways, so I go to India and then I take a rickshaw for like three hours. I wait in line to talk to the guru for several hours. <clears throat> I finally get a chance to talk to him. And I say, I want this mantra for feeling gratitude. And in an Indian accent, he says, yes, my mantra is the most powerful on earth. And he leans in to whisper in my ear, and he says, Whenever possible, repeat these words. The mantra I give you are the words, Thank you. So I look at him, and I figure he's joking, but he's totally serious. And then I say, That's it? I traveled 18,000 miles again. Thank you? That's it? And he said, No. That's it to the mantra you have been using. That makes you feel like you never have enough. My mantra is, thank you, not that's it. That's it will take you nowhere. So I'm totally pissed off. I say, well, thanks for nothing. And he says, thanks for nothing is not the mantra. He says, you must say it from your heart many times a day. So when you eat good food, say thank you. And when you see your child or a sunset or a pet, say thank you. Well, long story short, since I travel all that way, I figured I would use the mantra. And uh, I get into a taxi, and the taxi has air conditioning. It's 100 degrees in India. And I go, thank you to the universe. And then, you know, there's a clean bottle of water in my hotel room. Thank you for the water. I open up my computer to Skype my wife. You know, thank you for my computer. I thank you for Skype. I'm talking to her on the other side of the planet for free. I go, it just hits me what an amazing universe we have. And tears roll down my face. My my wife says, wow, that must have been some mantra he gave you. And I said, you have no idea. And, you know, I still use it because, you know, we have so much, but our minds are always focused on what's missing and what the problems are. And we forget that you know, we have 20,000 food items in the local supermarket. 
and we don't have to kill the buffalo. Somebody did it for us. Or, <laughs> you know, um, so just feeling your heart saying thank you and tuning into gratitude is a whole other world way of experiencing life. And it lights you up and then it's easier to then get into things like, um, I don't know, uh, love, joy, and peace. They're all connected. I'm glad you shared that. I, I found that to be a, a funny and beautiful story. I, I kept noticing how how often in my in my own life that that's it. You know, coming coming up that that that's it. Uh, that's the uh, default such a, mantra. Such a powerful, yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it's such a powerful powerful thing. How do you remember some of these simple, quick practices? Do you have a um, any tricks to to help remember and and integrate these in daily life? Yeah, I mean, a really simple one is I just have a post-it note I put on my computer and on my wall uh, for the technique I'm using that day. Um, so I usually choose one technique to focus on each day. I also uh, have a buddy that I talk to once a week, and we talk about how it's going with these techniques, uh, how our meditation's going. So being having some kind of support system like that really helps. It might be a spiritual group, but in my case, it's just a friend. Um, and, you know, luckily there's, there's books, there's YouTube videos that all kind of inspire and support you in this way. You know, you kind of become like the friends you hang out with. So I tried to hang mm -hmm. out with people like the Dalai Lama and Adyashanti and other people, hoping mm -hmm. that some of that would rub off. In, in all of these conversations that you've had, um, I'm sure there's been a, a number of, of insights and things that have stuck with you. But is there one or two that come to mind that have really just stuck with you and, and are, are present in, in maybe the back of your mind today? Um, well, one, I'll, I'll mention two that come to mind. One is uh, the Dalai Lama said kindness is his religion. And that he sees that in every moment, the question is how he can be kind. And that stuck with me because I think the world could use more kindness. And when you let kindness through to you, it actually increases your own level of happiness. And I think it makes other people happy as well. So that's powerful. Um, another one was that uh, a teacher said, "Now, right now is the most important moment of your entire life. Hmm. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, the past is past. That's not important anymore. The future, you've never lived in the future, and you never will. So this second is the single most important moment of your life, the one that you are currently in. And your job is to uh, learn as much as possible and to suck as much life out of it as possible, because now is the single most important moment of your life. Well, that really hit me that any moment I'm in, that is, it's not an inconvenience. You know, doing the dishes isn't an inconvenience. When I'm doing the dishes, that's the single most important moment of my life. And it changes your attitude towards the present a little bit if you can take that in. I, I love that. That is um, something, that, you know, as you read from the start of time, so many wise thinkers have said something along those lines. 
What are some of the obstacles that come to mind? How long you got? <laughs> not not long enough, but <laughs> um, well, I'll mention oh five or six just off the top of my head. Uh, one of them is we have a chattering mind that never shuts up, and we identify with whatever thoughts go through our head. That's a pretty big obstacle. Um, I don't know about you, but my mind has always chattered a lot. Luckily, I've learned to slow it down a little bit, but mostly I've learned to not identify with those thoughts. Uh, that's one obstacle. Um, certain needs that are bigger than they need to be, like the need for constant approval or the need for constant attention or the need to avoid constant attention, um, selfishness, uh, anger, you know, uh, those are ones that come up, a lack of clarity about what you want in life, um, mm -hmm. mechanicalness, you know, just habit that can be self-destructive, a lack of knowing yourself so that, you know, people lie to themselves all the time. All of these are obstacles on the path to peace. But uh, in the Enlightenment Project book, I do talk about how to overcome these uh, through certain methods and through um, connections with other people. You know, once you know your obstacles, you are less likely to fall into those traps. Or a friend of mine said, if you see dog poop on the, on the uh, road and you call it dog poop, you will not step in it. You don't have to come up with a, a, a plan. It's just you will avoid it. And the same is true with our obstacles. Once you say that your uh, addiction to Facebook is an obstacle and it's ruining your life, you don't have to come up with a plan. You just see that maybe I shouldn't do that so much. Well, I I tell you what, I really found the book to be an entertaining and, and fun read, which is not always the case when it when it comes to topics like enlightenment or, or wisdom. So so well done and I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Let me let me tra transition to a final wrap up question and we we've got a little bit of time and maybe we could spend a, a few moments here. I generally ask most guests how do you define or think about wisdom in daily life? Um, you know, what mm -hmm. comes up for you, you know, around the, the topic of wisdom and maybe how does it connect with an enlightenment if it does? Uh, well, I'll, I'll share a quick story. Um, I used to lead a movie group called profound movies and I would, show movies like Schindler's List or Gandhi, and people would write up a page what they learned from that movie. And one week I was not going to be there, so I I gave what I thought was the movie Gandhi to a friend to show, but in the DVD sleeve was the movie Men in Black 2, which uh, Men in Black 1 and Men in Black 3 were pretty good movies. Men in Black 2 was so bad that Will Smith said, you should not watch this movie. <laughs> you know, that's how bad of a movie it was. Anyways, so they are watching Men in Black 2, thinking it's one of my profoundest movies ever made, and writing about it. And what they wrote, to my amazement, was that it was life-transforming, that they learned so much from it that it really affected them in many ways. And 
the actual inanity of the movie um, didn't matter so much because their intention was to learn. And I think wisdom is partly the intention to learn from our life. So life is always giving us feedback. Our relationships are always giving us feedback. It's like raining diamonds on us all the time. And our job is to not bat those diamonds away, but to learn from them, to uh, get a better sense of how can I bring uh, true wisdom and learning into my life and that looks like learning from your mistakes and being honest about that, learning from what works, and also learning from the feedback you get from business, relationships, and life in general. And it sounds something that's easy to do, but our ego gets in the way. So I think wisdom is becoming a learning machine and taking that learning and then it naturally unfolding in your life because once again, you don't, people don't ever do things that they know to be stupid. If you see somebody do something unwise, it's because they haven't learned something or they haven't acknowledged something. And, you know, there's wisdom in a lot of different areas money, relationships, uh, spirituality, health. If you don't have a big ego where you insist that you're right, you're always open to learning. How do some of these ancient practices like meditation or contemplation, stillness and things like that help us uh, along the path? Well, I've found for myself that besides helping me tune into good feelings like gratitude, joy and love and peace, when you have a clear mind, you just see things more clearly and therefore you make better decisions. When you have a mind cluttered by lots of outdated beliefs and thoughts and opinions and dogma, it kind of forms a, a dirty lens in which you can't see things so clearly. So you end up making a lot more mistakes and doing things that are kind of self-destructive, like addictions and etc. cetera. But um, when you quiet inside, your energy and your decisions both become refined, and that leads to a more harmonious life. How do you see the role of, of maybe a mentor or a coach and things like that, um, you know, to help maybe find greater clarity and, and peace in your life? Well, you know, if you want to improve your tennis game quickly, you get a mentor or a, a tennis coach. And I think it's the same in this field. You know, we just make it sound weird through gurus and such. But, you know, one of my mentors is my dog. She's the most loving being mm -hmm. I know. You know, she's teaching. She's showing me how to love like all the time. I, it's just yeah. a matter whether or not I take it in. But, you know, also friends, also gurus that if your intention is to learn, you know, the old statement, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Well, that's true because the teachers are always around us, teachers of what not to do and teachers of what to do. And as you become more open, you see that life is very generous with sending you all kinds of teachers. Would you recommend, you know, any listeners that are out there 
interviewing, you know, someone that they might know that they find to be wise. I think about, you know, that's been such a big part of your path of, of seeking out people and, and thinking of, of good questions to ask. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody has a gift. So I have a friend who is just, her life is a mess, but she is really, really sweet. Hmm. <laughs> you know, she hasn't figured out the money thing or the health thing, but she's just a very sweet person. Well, I interviewed her, like, how do you, how, how'd that come through? How did that happen? You know, I want more of that. So it doesn't need to be a famous guru. You know, I have friends who I interview about how is it that they uh, have managed to maintain such a strong body when they don't exercise a lot. I want to know that, you know, or if a, yeah. if a guru comes before me, I want to know how they manage to find peace with uh, their meditation. It's really just a matter of curiosity. I love it. I think this has been really helpful, definitely for myself and for the listeners. Where do you point anyone interested in in learning more about you and in your work in the world, Jonathan? Well, I do have the website, theenlightenmentproject.net. And if people put in their email address, I give them the five, uh, an audio of my five favorite techniques and an ebook and the first chapter of the book for free. I also have a podcast called Awareness Explorers in which um, I interview uh, these teachers and we talk about how to find more peace and, and joy in life. So that would be a good resource as well. well. I love it. And we'll we'll link it in the show notes. Jonathan Robinson, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you. It's, you asked great questions, Joshua. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, Subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. 